Hello, and welcome to Should We Believe the News, a podcast that explores public trust in journalism in the digital age, by Matthew, Ewan, James, and Marina. Our first guest is Graham Dudman, currently Deputy Managing Editor with News Associates Journalism School, and formerly Managing Editor at The Sun. He started his career at the Stockport Express in 1983, and we'll discuss the challenges of breaking into journalism in that period compared to now. Graham, would you just tell us a little bit more about what it was like breaking into the industry uh, in 1983 and sort of how you approached the idea of being a journalist? Well, obviously it was very different. The Probably the main differences were uh, no internet, no social media and no mobile phones. So if you wanted to speak to anybody, uh, to interview anybody for a story, you would either have to go and knock on their door or speak to them on the telephone or arrange to meet them somewhere. And if you wanted information about anything, you, used to, you had to go and find it yourself. You couldn't just go and go onto Google uh, or go onto Facebook or go onto a community group or anything like that. It was all, there was a lot more human contact there's a lot more face-to-face contact which I think in many ways was a good thing because it meant that you could get a much uh, you got much closer to the people uh, I mean physically and emotionally to the people that you were interviewing it meant that there was a lot less information there was a lot less information around then um, so if you wanted to speak to somebody you, you had to basically try to look them up in the phone book or you went to the electoral register uh, because they weren't on Facebook, um, there wasn't Twitter, obviously the, 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 there was no internet. And I, I, the, other, the other big issue uh, was communication. So mobile phones didn't exist, paging, the, 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 before mobile phones there was something called, they were, they were, we used to call them beepers, they were like pages where you could send, like, you, you could send a message that was a telephone number or one word message that would pop up on a little screen and, and you could be connected to your news desk doing that. But other than that, you used to have to ring into the office and telephone the office. You were supposed to check what they call it, checking in every hour, which, which was a, a bit of a pain to be honest, but it also meant that you, you were connected, um, you were connected a lot, a lot less to the news desk than you were, uh, than you are now. But of course you were outside, you were out, interviewing people, knocking on doors, traveling around. Uh, and when I started, I couldn't afford a car. So I, I basically either walked anywhere or got the bus, which caused much hilarity in the newsroom for the more senior reporters who could afford a car. I remember once being sent, there was a robbery at a, a hospital in Stockport and I had to get the bus to the, to the Stepping Hill Hospital because that was the quickest way to get there. So it, it, was, it was very, very different. Um, but you know, you, you, because you didn't know any different, it was just the norm. So it wasn't, you weren't thinking, oh, I wish I could have done this. I mean, the idea that you could uh, get a photograph of somebody from something called Facebook would have been almost incredible back then. I remember we had a, a, a talk from one of the, actually it was one of the print printers who talked to us about uh, what you would know as a laptop but back then was known as a Tandy because it was it was the only company that produced them. And it was basically like a uh, the very first generation of a laptop where you'd write your story on a little screen 
and then you'd hook up a couple of like suction things to your telephone and it would send the um, send a signal down the telephone and, and um, which sounds incredibly basic now, like dial up basically before broadband. And uh, he said, oh, you, you know, he's going to change journalism. You, you, you'll, you'll be able to sit in a, in a council meeting or you'll be able to sit somewhere and you write your story on, on this machine and you'll send the story down the telephone line to the office. And we all, we all burst out laughing. We all thought he was, we all thought he'd been drinking all day. Could, how could you possibly, have, like, you're, you're trying to imagine what you take a portable typewriter and then you hook it into the telephone. And it would, and this, this seemed so surreal that um, what happens, you know, how you get your stories, how you find your stories now is, is second nature to go online and, and search for Facebook or, or search wherever. But if you wanted a, a, a photograph of somebody back then who was not famous and had not been photographed previously, you have to go. You had to go and ask somebody: could they borrow a photograph of them? And it, it, they were known as collects. So if you were doing a story about somebody who wasn't famous, and I've just showed you there from a scrapbook a, um, a, a story about a really sad story about a young man who was killed in a car crash, and you know it, the death knock. Uh, assignment where you're sent to interview the family to see if they'd like to talk to you and in this case they did they they wanted to talk to the local paper and i had to get uh, uh, i was asked to get uh, what was known as a collect so at the end of the interview you say well we know we'd like to run a photograph of whoever it was do you have any photograph that i could borrow and we could use in the paper and that was the only way you'd get a picture of them so very very different but you know it was still still very much doable it was just just very different um, you've told about there is sort of those assignments of there being a lot more um, communication with the communities themselves. Um, in a recent Ipsos Mori poll, the journalists were um, rated the fourth least likely to tell the truth of any profession, only behind government ministers, politicians and advertising experts. I was wondering, was there, when there was more communication with the people you were writing stories about, did you notice that there was more trust in the industry? That's a good question. Was there more trust in the industry back then? Yeah, I think there probably was, because if you wanted to reach an audience, the only way you could do it was through what is now almost dismissively known as the mainstream media. So you had to get in the newspapers or be on the radio or get on the telly. There was no other way of doing it. And uh, yeah, it was a lot more exclusive, if you like, in that, you know, I was a reporter on a local paper and I had an audience. I had you know, 30,000 people bought the Stockport Express every week. So you multiply that by three. So you've got, I've got an audience of about 100,000. Now, uh, and that's that's the readership of the paper. So, but to get that audience, I only had it once a week, and it was only when they bought the newspaper. And if they didn't buy the newspaper, you couldn't get it any other way. So, it, and there was a lot. I think there was a, there was a higher level of trust, uh, although equally that when papers got things wrong back then, it was a lot more difficult for the. Uh, for the complainers or the public to say, well, that's wrong, that story's wrong, you know, uh, unless it's a very high profile case. Uh, but now, you know, everyone's, uh, everyone thinks they're a reporter, everyone thinks they're a journalist, anyone can set up a blog. I mean, literally anyone. 
and publish pretty much whatever they like. Uh, but back then, to, to have anything published, you had to work for uh, a an established newspaper and these and this is because there was no internet so you couldn't to publish anything you had to physically print something so we had a printing press underneath our offices in this little office in Stockport in, in in South Manchester and it had its own printing press because that's the only way to to, to, to get this right we you know there was no online edition there was no podcast there was no blogs there were no social media accounts if you wanted to read what was in the Stockport Express, you had to go and buy a copy of the paper. And I think there was a there was a there was more perhaps a bit more respect for journalism and, and journalists back then. Although I have to say that it's that it, because the way that the media has changed and now, I mean, I still find it strange that when you see BBC journalists tweeting all day, and you think, well, aren't you doing the right? But of course, that's part of the the media landscape has changed. And, and and also, I think there's there's less respect now in that anyone can be on your phone. If you if you're following people on Twitter, you, you you start to go through your Twitter feed. You can have somebody. You can have someone like Laura Koonsberg, who's got x hundreds of thousands of followers and is incredibly respected senior senior uh, political journalist. And you can have somebody who's got 10 followers who actually some for some reason gets actually added into your uh, uh, your timeline or your or your or your newsfeed or whatever you call it and and it you're reading it on the same device next to a tweet from Laura Koonsberg. well if you back in the back in the 40 years ago if you wanted to read what the equivalent then of Laura Koonsberg said you probably had to either switch on the BBC nine o'clock news or buy a copy of a national newspaper and nobody else got in the national newspaper other than the journalists who were working on it. So that was a, it was the landscape was different back then. Yeah, I mean, that's something we've discussed a lot ourselves in terms of the challenges for people like ourselves looking to sort of break into the industry, whether that's sort of the immediate feedback that you touched on, people are able to sort of comment on your journalism straight away. Is that something that you felt when you were starting out that obviously there was perhaps a little bit more anonymity, didn't have that online. And if you were sort of breaking into the industry now, would you perhaps look differently at the idea of being a journalist? Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, I went into journalism because I wanted to be, I wanted to be a disc jockey on Radio One. That was that was my career path. And, and I only went into journalism because someone at the BBC said, if you want to get on in local radio, son, go and be a newspaper reporter for a couple of years. And I went into newspapers to do that and then fell in love with it and never left but we you did you you got very little immediate well you got no immediate reaction to your stories because you wrote them so I was on a weekly newspaper it came out once a week there was literally one deadline a week the pages had deadlines through the week but essentially the paper was printed once a week and so it was printed on a Wednesday lunchtime to be, you could buy it in the streets uh, in Stockport on Wednesday afternoon. And the idea was that it was delivered into people's homes on Thursday morning. And uh, Thursday morning, the phones would be busier than normal because there would be people ringing in to complain or comment on a story, uh, but that was it. And they didn't have your direct line. You went through to the news desk, uh, the news editor answered the phone 
my phone number didn't appear in the newspaper. My email address didn't appear. Well, there wasn't an email address. So you, you were certainly insulated from criticism. And I mean, I made, I made you know, the typical mistakes that a, a young trainee reporter makes and, and got, a, you know, got a proper bollocking from the news editor for it, uh, quite rightly, spelling people's names wrong, getting some basic facts wrong. Uh, but it wasn't done in public. And I can imagine now that's a real challenge for a young reporter getting, getting, the, getting the excitement of getting a job and publishing stuff and people being able to comment on it in almost in real time and be really rude about you and even more than rude, being really offensive about you for you know, anything for what they perceive to be your beliefs, your appearances, your biases, your whatever. And I, we didn't have any of that as, as a, I didn't have any of that as a young reporter. And I'm very grateful that I didn't because I'm not sure how I'd have been able to cope with it um, if, if it had turned nasty, which it, which, it, which it could well have done. And do you think that some of the maybe slightly more negative attitudes towards journalists in general that maybe we're seeing now, um, especially with, with kind of these issues of um, social media being used more for, for journalism and disinformation kind of being almost weaponized by people who maybe disagree with what newspapers are publishing. Do you think some of these more negative attitudes are justified in, in any way? Uh, I, I think they're, they're justified. I mean, if, if somebody perceives that a story's been published and it is factually incorrect, then there's a there's now actually there's a there's a uh, a very clear and and easy to follow process to set out to complain through the IPSO through the Independent Press Standards uh, Organisation uh, about if there's an accuracy issue, um, but. When it comes to um, people objecting to stories because they don't like them or because they disagree with them, there's a lot more of that now that, again, we didn't have uh, pre-internet and pre-social media. That if you didn't like a story in the Stockport Express, you just didn't buy it or stop buying it. Whereas now you get on, you, you know, you'd, you'd start retweeting it, you'd start tagging other people in, you'd start to kick up a storm. We start, let, let's try and get a Twitter storm. Let's have a pile on. Let's try and get the journalists sacked. Let's try and close the paper down. And, and I find that, um, uh, I, I find the, uh, the, the sort of the, the Twitter storm when it's turned against journalists, who are just telling a story. If you don't like the story, if the story is factually incorrect or it's wrong, sue them or complain through Ipso. We've got the strongest, hardest libel laws in the country, in, in the world in Britain. But but it's the it's when journalists get targeted and get abused um, that, that is uh, is is really unpalatable. Where someone is uh, hurls abuse on Twitter or on social media. At a, at a young journalist simply because they don't like what they've reported it is something that we didn't have to put up with um, back in the 80s. In this next segment, James, Marina and Ewan, as trainee journalists at News Associates, will discuss the difficulties of breaking into journalism in the digital age 
dealing with exposure on social media and facing up to the distrust so many have for journalists. So you in a recent Ipsos Mori poll has shown that journalists are some of the least trusted members in society, whether that's uh, just on, just below advertising execs, politicians and government ministers. Uh, why do you think this is? And is this something that you as a sort of trainee journalist about to break into the industry uh, take on board sort of personally? Um, I think it's a... Uh... It's worrying, especially it, it happened over the pandemic where um, journalists was, had to be trusted to convey the right information at the right time. Um, and it's worrying to see that only 23% um, only of people actually believe them. Um, it's definitely something that sort of makes you concerned as you're going into the industry that sort of what you're going into to sort of inform people of the right things to make a difference. Um, you're not going to be able to do that to sort of less than a quarter of the population. So it is worrying and it sort of does make you think twice about sort of how important your job would be and how effective you would be able to do it. But um, I think it is still important. It's, um, and there's, it sort of brings into mind that there's a developing role of journalists as well to fight this information and to put it out and make sure that everything you're doing is trustworthy. And there's an added responsibility that goes with that. Yeah, I think it's really interesting when you mentioned sort of the responsibility of journalists. I suppose, Marina, it's a, potentially there's two parts of this, right? There's the element of, do we as journalists need to sort of work on being more trustworthy? Or is there perhaps something slightly more role on the on the public to actually take at face value what uh, journalists are coming out coming out with rather than sort of you know using sort of quite derogatory terms to refer to the media and there's this sort of belief of the the mainstream media how it you know how do the two sort of interplay and how can we sort of reach a solution where journalists are more trusted by the public yeah i mean obviously as, as with most things i think it's probably a bit of both so I think journalists, one, as we've all learned um, during our NTTJ course, one of the most important things for journalists is accuracy. And I think if, you, if you're a trained journalist, if you're a qualified journalist, then you'll know that it's the most important thing to get basic facts right, to um, when you interview someone and to quote them kind of faithfully and in, in context. And there, there's a really, really strong kind of ethical um, focus on that um, for qualified journalists who are um, working within the industry. Now, there's, I guess, the other side of that is that there might be people online who maybe um, view themselves as journalists that don't have the same training and maybe don't really have the same background and may not really um, I guess have received the same um, ideas and the same training that really really focuses on the importance of accuracy um, so there's there's that so I think in a way there's the press also kind of have a duty to try to really distinguish themselves from maybe people who uh, tweet their opinions and really 
work to make sure that people recognize that uh, they have credentials and that they are trusted sources. But also on the other hand, um, I think people, everyone um, needs to be quite critical of, I mean, we've been saying for years, like don't trust everything you read online. And I think that that will continue to be um, really important. So we, we all have to be quite critical about the information that we receive and we consume and how we take it. Do we take it as fact or do we kind of take it with a pinch of salt? Yeah, you mentioned the internet there a few times. I think this probably is something that's at the crux of this um, debate, right? It's sort of how uh, journalism and we as journalists interact with the internet and it's sort of the changing medium that, you know, to even 10 years ago, wasn't the force that it is now and you see on social media there's sort of constant instant feedback um to people's articles and abuse towards journalists particularly female journalists so I mean I suppose this is a more broad question we can narrow it down but how does I mean you and how does journalism looking forward have to sort of really grapple with the internet in regards to sort of building that trust back up is there sort of something specific that can be done um, I think it's a difficult one because the internet's obviously our best asset and sort of it's the best asset of people who really dislike journalism and sort of are looking to spread disinformation. Um, so it's a very double-edged sword and I think it's always going to be difficult to deal with it in that way. But yeah, no, as you were saying, the abuse that it gathers from it is it's awful and that's a huge um, point of dissent towards journalism and um, can really both undermines the message that people are often trying to get across but also it's really difficult for journalism themselves journalists themselves and often sort of puts people off it and it, it's becoming a much dirtier world in some ways. Yeah, Marina, I suppose, you know, is there anything as a, as a young journalist breaking in that now our use of the internet has to be, you know, we, we, there's, we have to have that sort of presence online, even to sort of, in terms of just getting jobs, never mind sort of as part of your job. Is that something you've been sort of wary of as, um, as you're sort of breaking into the industry? Is it something that there are dangers with it that perhaps you're sort of concerned about? Yeah, definitely. I think on a on a personal note, I don't I'm not really someone who particularly enjoys social media. I mean I mean like my personal use of social media, kind of putting myself out there. Um so I think in, in that sense, yes, um I'm a bit wary um of kind of putting my personal presence on there. I think it's very different when you maybe operate social media for a media outlet and you don't have your name and your picture up there but you're kind of behind the sort of protection of the outlet um i think when when it's you and it's your identity and it's your personality that's really on the front line it can be quite stressful and it can kind of bring new and and, and different areas of difficulty because then any criticism you receive it's personally directed at you and it's um, it's often, I mean, obviously people can always criticise your work, but often on social media, it does become quite personal. And it's 
not really something that's ever quite pleasant to deal with. I've not had any experiences of it so far, but I am quite wary of it and um, I hope it doesn't happen in the future, but I think to an extent it's maybe inevitable. Yeah, I mean, I suppose perhaps, and this, you know, maybe this is a personal thing, but I think there is perhaps a slightly more vitriolic atmosphere around journalists particularly online and this idea that sort of maybe we're fair game in the sense you know we you look at sort of the way the reaction from a lot of people when Laura Coonsberg announced um she'd be stepping down as BBC political editor and almost it was this idea that well everyone could just have a pop at them and it, you know there are very few other professions where the this sort of idea of sort of immediate feedback that can be so visceral is seemingly accepted in the way that sort of you know okay you might get it with sort of football but there's that's a that's a lot more trivial than sort of you know someone who's the the BBC political editor so I think you know if we just zoom out from a little bit in terms of you know we must have all made a decision at some point to want to become or at least try and become a journalist is the current sort of atmosphere around journalism you and something that you were sort of aware of when making that decision it was something that would potentially put you off and maybe you know in sort of five years time if it gets worse and stuff you know is there a sense maybe that people who are in our position in that time might be increasingly put off from uh, becoming a journalist I, I think as journalism students I'm not alone in saying that I've had very difficult conversations with my parents about sort of going into journalism because it is often seen as a bit of a sleazy world a bit of a dirty world but a lot of the actual safeguards that are in place a lot of the sort of think the ways in which it's enforced are not known about so things like the ipso code um and i think it's very difficult yes it's it's it put a, that puts a lot of people off i think the way in which it is perceived and the way in which other people sort of judge it, especially if you're sort of looking to go into tabloid journalism or, um, yeah, or especially if you're going into tabloid journalism, I think um, it's a very difficult world to break into. And once you're in it, you sort of realise that it's not quite how people perceive it. And there is a lot of hard work that goes into it and a lot of brilliant journalists. But I think that first stepping stone yeah it's, it's really difficult and I think you were saying yeah. earlier um that you had kind of a difficult conversation with your parents and I know it's quite personal so I'm not sure if you would like to share but um I think kind of just adding to that is it has it been difficult to know that some people have very strong opinions on your job Definitely, yeah. It's not um, it's not an easy one to do, and I think especially because I don't know about you, but I've sort of, for me, the easiest way to get into journalism at the moment is through tabloid newspapers. Um, I think that's a very difficult conversation to have when sort of um, your parents sort of very much look down, especially on things like the Sun and the Star, which are very have great journalists in them and have really interesting stories, um, but. I think there is definitely a snobbishness towards that kind of newspaper um, and a it's very difficult to sort of put that across in some ways 
Um, and I know I'm not the only person in having experienced this. I've talked to a lot of people who um, say, oh God, you're working for them. What do you sort of, what, what made you do that? Why don't you just go into something like PR instead? Um, which I think a lot of people do end up doing. It's, but yeah, I think it's a, it's always going to be a challenge and it does put people off. Yeah, I suppose then sort of as we sort of try and maybe come, if we bring it sort of to a close a little bit, we've spoken a lot about sort of the, this relationship between journalism and journalists and sort of the public and whether that's based on trust, whether that's about feedback and sort of journalists having to sort of be a bit more exposed um, to the public and whether that's that can be both a good thing and a bad thing through sort of social media and feedback and being in or out of touch. I suppose then, um, Marina, is it maybe there is an element of balance in all of this and that you know, something Graham touched on is that there's always been sort of this mistrust about journalists, just this is now the new form where in terms of the internet and social media and and it's something that perhaps we have to all have to adapt to on, on all sides of this sort of debate and that, you know, reaching this sort of balance between journalists building up a little bit more trust but perhaps the public trusting us a little bit more and everyone sort of getting used to the way in which sort of news interacts with the internet is sort of really the not necessarily solution to this but sort of the way in which we'll sort of carry on for the next sort of however long until sort of the new medium or the new thing comes along that sort of drives potentially a wedge between sort of the public and and journalists in terms of trust yeah definitely so I, I think it's we can talk about it however long we like but we're not going to kind of take journalism back to how it was when Graham started or um, remove social media from journalism altogether so I think and I think also as um, uh, the mainstream media <laughs> or kind of large reputable news sources can also have a duty to be present on social media because you know, um, this information will always be present because it's just so easy to, um, it's, it's, it's simple, it's easily accessible. So I think um, media sources do kind of have a responsibility to have a presence, to um, have a voice on social media, on the internet or, or on whatever the next um, medium is going to be and adapt to it and I think right now we're we're in the adapting stage when um we're getting used to it and maybe there isn't um a set way of dealing with social media yet but again as Graham also did mention a lot of newsrooms now have training courses uh policies to protect their reporters from the worst of of, of social media so I think it's we just need to find a way to harness it um and i think more generally yeah we do all as a society have a lot of work to do um on finding on how to behave on social media on how to relate to one another on social media and on kind of how we use this tool and whether we're going to use it to um send nasty messages to people whoever they may be or to engage with one another in, in a way that may be critical, but is still respectful. So I think that's part of a larger conversation that um, we're all having right now um, as a society. And I'm quite interested to see how it will move going forward. 
We then had a discussion with Saoirse Hughes, a worker for Newswise, a charity which aims to combat misinformation through news literacy programmes for primary school age children. So would we, could I get you just to sort of introduce yourself really quickly first and just sort of a little bit about Newswise, just sort of what it does and sort of yeah. why, it's, why it's so important. Absolutely. Um, so my name is Saoirse Hughes and I'm the project coordinator for Newswise. I've been with Newswise for a couple of years now um, and my role is to recruit all the schools that we work with, um, get them set up on the programme and help everything run smoothly on their side. Training teachers as well to be able to deliver the project in their classrooms. Um, and another really nice part of what I do is working with our volunteers. So we get journalists into the classroom to meet children. Um, and my role is to recruit them and train them up to be able to meet children and kind of impart their knowledge and wisdom about the world of journalism. Um, so that's me and my role with Newswise and Newswise in general um, is a free news literacy programme for seven to 11 year olds and we're run in partnership by the Guardian Foundation, the National Literacy Trust and the PSHE Association. So there's loads of expertise from all those different organisations going into the programme and the programme really aims to empower children and their families with the skills and knowledge to engage with the news. Um, so we want them to be able to identify and challenge this and misinformation, um, but also to be able to report their own news stories. It's kind of a um, kind of multi-pronged approach that they tell their own stories whilst also being able to navigate the stories that are already out there. And we do this through outreach work with primary schools um, and family groups, as well as having loads of digital resources. And the really, really nice thing is that everything that we do is completely free for all participants and schools. Um, so that is what we do. Just sort of why was it so important to set up a scheme to promote to promote news literacy and sort of what prompted it? So the Guardian Foundation's actually been running news literacy projects for about 20 years now. It's 20 years this year um, with tens of thousands of young people visiting the education centre, which is actually in the Guardian building. Uh, which is currently in King's Cross. And Newswise was kind of created off the back of that. So it allowed us to really increase our capacity um, and to reach schools that wouldn't have had the resources to travel to London. Um, it's really difficult for primary schools to travel long distances because it's, they can't stay overnight in the same way that a secondary school could. Um, and the schools that we target have higher than average rates of free school meals. So they also don't have the resources to kind of arrange a trip like that. Um, so Newswise means that we can reach those schools because we travel to them as an outreach organisation rather than them coming to us. So it's really meant that we can expand our capacity and our reach, which has been really, really great. Um, and then the kind of focus on critical literacy and tackling misinformation was in response to concerns that were raised by um, a report carried out by the National Literacy Trust um, back in 2018 on fake news and critical literacy. And that found that only 2% of children have the necessary critical literacy skills to identify fake news, which is obviously quite alarming. Um, and as a consequence of the proliferation of fake news, young people are trusting traditional mainstream news a lot less. Um, so it's really eroding that trust that they have in the media and the news in general. Um, and the, that report also found that teachers are concerned about the effect that fake news is having on children's well-being. So again, you've got all those concerns about kind of their mental health and their well-being. Um, so that's kind of why we create we were created because we were already doing um, work in this area, but we wanted to be able to do more across the whole UK. So we're in all four nations um, and also targeting that really specific audience of those schools that um, need kind of the extra support and the extra 
input. Um, there's also kind of the last few years, it's been a really, um, I don't know, there's been a lot, a lot of talk about fake news um, kind of since the Brexit referendum and since the last few elections that we've had, especially in the US. Um, and then the last couple of years with COVID, obviously there's been a lot of myths and disinformation flying around. Um, and it's just really important that for pe keeping people safe and also just for kind of democracy, that people have the critical literacy skills that they need to be able to navigate all of that information. Um, so that's what all our resources are designed to do. They're kind of enlightening children about the process behind making news, what, how and why news is made, why it's so important. Um, and then giving them the skills to be able to spot when something doesn't look or sound right. And then, like I said already, they do that really important bit of creating their own news report. So we're giving them a voice and an opportunity to tell them their own stories. Um, so that's why we kind of think it's so important, all those different reasons. Oh. Thank you. That's so interesting. And I mean, one thing is primary school children are quite young. So why is it so important to kind of target that specific age group? and teach, you know, teach it so early on. Yeah, so you're right, it is really early on and we are quite unusual in working with this age group. A lot of similar organisations are working with secondary school groups, which is also really, really important. Um, but we think it's really important to kind of catch them at this age because it's when they're just on the cusp of kind of becoming digital citizens in their own right. Um, and they're all starting to get their own devices. So there was a recent Ofcom study that found that 44% of eight to 11 year olds, which is our, our age group is seven to 11 year olds, um, have their own smartphone and 66% 66, 66 of them have their own tablet and 44% of them are using social media sites or apps. Um, so they all, and they all, a lot of them are starting to use these devices. And then a previous Ofcom study found that 45% of children who have a device are allowed to take it to bed with them. So they're starting to kind of use the internet and browse online content, content often unsupervised um, without someone kind of checking what they're seeing or being able to answer questions. Um, a lot of young people are using TikTok. So almost half of five to 15 year olds use TikTok to watch content in 2020 um, with a third watching content on Instagram, Facebook and Snapchat. So you can kind of see that how everyone especially young people are consuming information is really changing and the education needs to evolve as rapidly to make sure that they have the skills to properly make sense of what they're seeing online um, which is why we want to kind of catch them at that really early age before any bad habits become really ingrained. Um, TikTok is something that comes up quite a lot so teachers often tell us that their children are on TikTok and they're quite concerned about what they're seeing. Um, you can kind of consume a lot of content um, but it's not always clear kind of the source or the accuracy of that information that you're seeing. And Ofcom also found in their report that whilst they might kind of think, whilst children might think that the information they're seeing isn't that accurate or trustworthy, they don't have the skills or the tools to be able to check that and actually verify it. Um, if they are carrying out any checks, it's usually just checking that there's other sources saying the same thing as what they're seeing, but they're not necessarily checking the trustworthiness or the reliability of those sources themselves. So they could still just be kind of reading more and more um, information that's reinforcing something um, that's not true that they've seen. Um, there's also issues around um, news consumption becoming more solitary because everyone is consuming it on their own personal devices. It's no longer kind of the days of everyone sitting down to watch the six o'clock news together as a family. Um, so people, children are talking to their parents slightly less about the news. 
but their parents are still kind of a trusted source. Um, but if the parents don't have the necessary skills to like understand what they're seeing or what they're reading, then kind of that breakdown happens. So we also have resources and workshops for families as well to kind of um, reinforce that and give them all the skills together to be able to discuss the news um, and combat misinformation together. And also well-being is super important at this age when they're still very, very young. And we give children the tools to be able to kind of look after themselves when they're consuming news. So whether that's taking a break, if a story is getting too overwhelming, um, breaking up negative stories with more positive ones, um, or just talking to someone about what they've read, uh, we equip them with those skills to be able to look after themselves. And we also train teachers to create really safe environments in their classroom um, to be able to discuss the news. So if children are going into school with questions about news stories, which is what happens all the time, teachers know how to kind of safely um, discuss them and how to also look after themselves when talking about those stories. Um, so that is why we target this age group. Amazing, thank you. It was really interesting to hear sort of how you're saying that people are moving away from these traditional news sources. Um, is, mm -hmm. there, is there sort of like a distrust for journalists sort of outside the industry? And just wondering if you sort of notice any resistance while you're teaching. So it's an interesting question because the age group that we work with, they're so young, they're often not aware of the role of a journalist and the fact that news is created is written by journalists and produced by journalists. Um, so there's that lack of understanding of where news actually comes from, which is part of what we're trying to do. We're trying to kind of give them that understanding of how the news is made, the role of journalists, what you will do in getting the stories out there. So the unit of work that we have, um, all the lessons starts with some lessons about how the news is made and the role of journalists. So it's quite an interesting one with this age group that they don't necessarily have that distrust of journalists because they don't really know what a journalist does until we've taught them about it um, and we've got them to meet them, um, which is a really nice part of what we do. So it's, yeah, it's not necessarily that we're trying to kind of get them to trust journalists. We're, kind, we're getting them to question and, um, you know, think critically about what they're reading, but we're also getting them to understand what journalists do and how, where that news comes from. Um, we do see though that um, they can go quite far with the teaching of um, don't believe everything you read. And in the workshops that we do, when we do activities with them about fake and real stories and they're investigating these stories, you can show them as much evidence as you want about a story being real. It might be kind of an unbelievable story, but it is real. You show them the evidence and sometimes they're really, really hard to convince because they're so convinced that it must be fake because you couldn't possibly feed a bear ice cream, which is one of the stories that we have. <laughs> so it can be really hard to kind of persuade them that it is real, even though you have loads of evidence. And I think a lot of that does come from adults telling them um, like don't believe everything you read online or you can't you know don't trust everything you see um so it's kind of giving them those skills to be able to like not just dismiss what they see and hear as it must all be fake news which is something that they've heard it's making sure that they can make informed decisions and actually believe the things that are real um and we're kind of trying to reverse that like erosion of trust in the media um so yeah just giving them those skills to be really critical thinkers and we also want them to kind of value the news and see why it's so important um, so we have a lesson about Windrush which demonstrates the power of the media in changing the government's mind and the kind of influence that journalists had when um, in the beginning of the Windrush scandal um, and the power of the news to kind of do good we want them to understand that 
um, and they get really excited about that and they get really excited about being in role as journalists and getting to do it for real and then when we introduce them to a real journalist it gets it becomes even more exciting so they're really kind of excited and hyped up about becoming journalists so we're trying to inspire the future generation of journalists um, and show them that they are people that can be trusted um, there are real people making the news um, but yes in answer to your question um, we don't necessarily see that distrust just because the children are so young and there isn't that understanding there of how the news is made that's a good question oh thank you <laughs> one of the things i really sort of noticed like as a volunteer it made me question the way that i was thinking about being a journalist and i was going into it for the first time at that point i was just wondering sort of what pickup what sort of reaction you've got from teachers and sort of how pickup has gone sort of rolling the scheme out as a very new idea yeah, so feedback from teachers is always really, really great, um, kind of especially during the pandemic um, when we were running it, particularly last year, teachers reported that it really helped them um, navigate and help children understand a lot of their questions that they had over the last couple of years when there was obviously a huge story in the news that was dominating it and it was overwhelmingly negative and quite scary. Um, I think it really helped teachers just be able to discuss that with their pupils and also giving children those skills that they need to step away if it's getting too much and know what to do um, in that instance. So yeah, feedback from teachers is generally that it's great and they can integrate the things that we're teaching them in other subjects. So it's not just in literacy and PSHE, they can do it elsewhere. And they also report that children kind of carry on using those critical thinking skills when they're reading other texts um, and they bring it into other things and they carry on discussing the news you know schools report that they carry on watching news round together or they set up a school newspaper um, so that's really really great to see um, but i think it was generally a very useful tool during the pandemic um, just to help answer those quite like overwhelming questions um, and then just in terms of our like reach since we started so we started in 2018 and we've reached just over 900, 9,000, um, I can't read my own notes, 9,000 pupils and 2,375 teachers. So we had quite a wide reach and we work in all four parts, all four countries of the UK. So we are everywhere. Um, so we try and be really kind of proportionally representative. So we've got a good spread across the whole UK um, and we're not just in one area, which is really important to us that we're really reaching those schools and those kind of harder to reach areas. You've been listening to Should We Believe the News? Journalism 